Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Alexei, born in Yash, Romania, Alexei Ugurunashu is a non-binary Romanian-Canadian artist. In their art and writing, Alexei uses words to bridge the distance, be it physical, emotional, or temporal, between themselves and the places, people, and moments that they miss. Alexei's work has appeared in print journals such as Exile Quarterly, as well as in exhibitions at the Arts Council Windsor and Region. They are a co-founder and co-editor of the Spot On Artist Interview Series, and they have editing and publishing experience from internships with publishers such as Black Moss Press. They have served as a member and contributor to the Arts Council Windsor and Region's Vanguard Youth Arts Collective, working on several projects that engaged youth through the arts and writing. Alexi has volunteered with Artsite Inc. in downtown Windsor, helping to install artworks and assisting with exhibitions with the Humanities Research Group, at the University of Windsor, serving as an undergraduate student representative on the advisory board, and being named a two-time finalist of the Why Humanities contest. And they participated in several Toronto-based arts and culture events and initiatives prior to arriving in Windsor. During their position as Youth Poet Laureate, Alexi hosted a monthly virtual series called First Impressions. Alexi and their guests interviewed one another, read a few texts from their bodies of work, Entering the talks with limited knowledge of each other's stories, life, passions, and writings, Alexi and their guests aimed to simultaneously display and transcend first impressions through the questions and words that they shared with each other and their audience. These things were watched by a lot of people. When Alexi first uh, presented the idea to me, I said, of course, it's the pandemic, everything's online, let's do it. I don't think either of us knew that there would be so many people tuning in that they'd be watched so often afterwards. And if, if you're wondering about the impact of them, the folks that you interviewed, the youth writers, most of them are in the room tonight. And I think that's, uh, it says something about who you are and how you do what you do, that they are here to read tonight as a send off to you uh, after you gave them a platform that maybe they didn't have prior to you being in this role. So kudos to you, that's how it's supposed to work. Alexi led writing workshops both in person and online, and a local writing group called the Windsor Warblings that has enough poems written to publish an anthology, if any publishers are interested. Alexi recently graduated from the University of Windsor with an honors BA in English Language and Literature and Philosophy. They graduated with great distinction, the President's Medal, and a few other awards and medals. Alexi's research interests include romantic literature, existentialist philosophy, and indigenous literatures and philosophies. They plan to teach English as a foreign or second language abroad. Without further ado, Alexi. Hello, hello. Thank you so much, Christopher. Um, and thank you everyone for coming out tonight. Before we continue, I would like to remind everyone that tonight's reading takes place on the traditional territory of the Free Fires Confederacy of First Nations which includes the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, and the Potawatomi. It is our responsibility to protect this land and all the beings with whom we share it, and to recognize that many of the privileges we share today have unjust origins. 
We cannot repeat the errors of those who came before us. We must ensure that future generations can continue healing this land. I am so happy to see so many dear friends, and I'm pumped for the exciting lineup of poets and writers uh, who will share their words with us tonight. And tonight, of course, is my final reading in Windsor for the foreseeable future. Um, it is also a celebration of Windsor, Windsor's youth and emerging writers, um, and a showcase of the exciting talent that lives here. So, let's hear it for the first reader tonight. Victoria Heckner is an indigenous writer and a member of the Ochapaways Nation in Saskatchewan. She's currently studying English literature and creative writing with a minor in indigenous studies at the University of Windsor. Victoria previously attended St. Clair College to obtain a diploma in early childhood education, and she's currently employed as a registered early childhood educator. During her free time, Victoria plays video games, writes a lifestyle blog, and enjoys spending time with her cat. I met Victoria just a few months ago at a book launch, and she was soon after a guest on First Impressions. We had personal and difficult conversations about culture, our connections to our respective cultures, and the obstacles we may encounter as we navigate our lived experiences. Tonight, I'm grateful to invite Victoria Heckner to share some of her work with us. Victoria. All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, this is the second time in a week that I've been asked to go first without being prepared, and I'm still not used to it. So, and I do have another confession to make. Um, admittedly, I wrote one of these poems about an hour before I came tonight, and I won't tell you which is which, so you'll have to guess. Uh, but so I'm gonna share two poems with you tonight, and the first one is called Old House on Kildare Road. The old house on Kildare Road stood proud that night, just as it had every night since 1892. Fish scales, shingles wrap around its exterior. Stained glass windows reflect the light of a full moon. The ornamental woodwork embellishes the classic architecture of a home dearly led by many throughout the years. As he walks through the streets in the dead of night, approaches the old house on Kildare Road, distant memories of being a young boy inside the home fall upon him with the vigor of a recurring dream. The days out by the garden with grandpa, the evenings spent in the living room with grandma, dinners on Christmas day in the dining area, the laughter of an innocent child that ricocheted off the sturdy walls. He, now a man of 30, stands at the side of the curb, peers over the lush green hedges that frame the old house on Kildare Road. He weeps and he trembles, feeling the loss of his youth, mourning the death of his grandparents. The guilt of not visiting his grandmother before her passing is irreparable. In the spaces between quivering fingers that hide a tear-stained face, the man sees something in the upstairs bedroom of the old house on Kildare Road. Pale and indistinct, an apparition of a woman he could only presume to be that of his grandmother emerges from the inside of the window. Their eyes meet, his body convulses with both an excruciating sadness and an irrefutable happiness. He says to himself, I finally got to see her one last time. A mere two miles away that same night, a young woman lies asleep with a dream of being inside the old house on Kildare Road. She sifts through boxes of photographs and tattered clothes, helping her sick grandmother and packing up her belongings. The young woman fondly recalls memories of her and her grandparents with each timeless photograph she caresses. Her grandmother disappears from her sight. When she is found, the grandmother is seen longingly gazing out from her bedroom window. The sun looms on the horizon the following morning, a text message wakes up the young woman from her deep slumber. 
Her brother tells her of his, of his encounter with her grandmother the night before, of how she had appeared before him by her bedroom window to greet him with her kind, hazel eyes one last time. Cold shivers spread across her arms, her legs, her chest, as she remembers her own visions of her grandmother. They do not chalk it up to coincidence, nor do they understand the meaning of arriving at the old house on Kildare Road the same evening. Perhaps their grandmother, too, wanted one final goodbye. Homebound, a few dollars in my pocket, westbound, bitter wind smacks my face, pushing forwards to the land of my ancestors. Sacred ground, precious earth, enveloped by the footprints of my tribe from members both present and past. Painful history of decolonization coexists with the resilience of a proud people ingrained permanently deep within the dirt. A symphony of voices arise to say hello, surrounded by sage and soil, heard amidst a silence loud enough to split an ear. Day creeps into dusk, and evening sky creeps black. The choir continues to enthrall, growing louder with each echo. Tanzi, welcome. My ancestors speak to me, reaching out to the descendants of those who came after them. One tells me, touch the land. Another speaks, inspire future generations. One says, immerse yourself within the culture. A voice chants, protect the territory by respecting it and all which it provides for us. Tell their stories, make them proud. Reunited with family, a beautiful culture, an empowered nation that permeates my soul with utmost pride. The feathers on my moccasins brush against the surface of the earth, and I am home. Thank you. He comes from Makakoba, Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. He's a spoken word artist, storyteller, youth mentor, grassroots community organizer, and mental wellness advocate. His spoken word name is Zumkonto, which happens to be his bloodline's totem. Some of his recent publications include Best New African Poets 2019 Anthology by Moanaka Media and Publishing, and Ipikai Poetry Journal Inaugural Edition, among others. I think the first time I shared space with Bonisi, it was virtually for a Zoom arts workshop or webinar, and I've been fortunate to continue crossing paths with him ever since. He has consistently watched and supported my first impressions, shows, and other initiatives, and I'm always happy to see his work come up on my timeline as well. We were also finally able to meet in person for the first time at Artsite during one of their community connectors, where we played the drums and shared poems with the group. Please give a warm and loving welcome to Bonisi Zikali. so much. Um, <clears throat> I always love to meet uh, people like Alexi because the storytelling tradition is always so vast in our many different uh, cultures that we stem from and storytelling traditions are healers in, in of themselves and so I wish you the magic of words. I wish that when you go the magic grows even bigger with every every community you meet. I'm grateful for you. Thank you. So the poem I wanted to share um, is about my son. Uh, he's a 13-year-old, lovely young man. And this is called A Letter to My Son. My son, Ndota Nayami. I wish you mountains that stoop down and crumble the tufts of the hay on their crown. 
to create beach sand for shores that this world will not dare stumble into and pollute. Where the music of ancient flutes is trapped in the shells that populate its blanket of pebbles and stones, which when thrown against the surface of the ocean, which it, with each bouncing motion whisper back the secrets of the snails that died inside them, carrying hell on their backs and heaven in their hearts. The ones say to have slowed down deliberately to allow and sacrifice for their shells to become refuge for the songs whose melodies are now known for guiding the bruised hips of lost slave ships back home. My son, daughter Nayan, I wish you to speak bright words the way light was named with sound in attendance and that I live long enough to tell you the story of how light and sound learned to dance for the first time, trapping the universe in a trillion light years of rhythm. My son, I wish that as you whisper your own name, you believe it, that each letter in it is a further inside the largest wing to ever host the wind, and that when you fly, you're not distracted fighting that wind, but just enjoying the area of view. Daughter Nayam, my son, I want to take yeah, all of the insults of this world on your behalf so that you find half of the world's untruths about black boys shelved in some bunker somewhere. I would have walked back and forth through time to collect each falsehood and trap it in the underworld, not to burn a single one but to remind you that another generation will be waiting upon you to collect the other half. Make sure that the collection is complete. Then make a bonfire and invite the neighbors. All singing together, screaming, Frack racist! My son, I wish that your eyes, your teenage eyes, will take long walks down the hallways of histories yet to be written. And that those that died gritting their teeth while holding on to olive branches can see you plant seeds and be proud. And that seeing you hunger to, yearn, to learn more will disarm their spirits and charm them enough to forgive the trees from which the spears that dug into their chests were carved. My son, I wish you the rarest form of love. The one that plays catch with itself. Throwing boomerang kisses into the sky, knowing that the love will come back glowing with the remnants of dying stars. And that each tiny sparkle of those dying stars will hustle its way back into the universe and become a fully blown sun. My son, I want you to know that the hourglass is a desert of seconds ticking away until you are brave enough to shatter that glass and find water. Because that's what I wish for you. I wish you water to flow through the future like hip-hop, like poetry. My son, I wish you an elephant's memory so that you remember to forget what they did to me. Right? That 
date to ancestry. Find your identity. But more than anything, my son, I wish that you remember that you are royalty. Bayete zomkonto kabatela mzilangata mpangasita. Thank you. Thank you so much, police. Next, uh, Serafina Piacentin is a third-year student at the University of Windsor, enrolled in English literature and creative writing. Her passion for fiction and poetry has resulted in multiple anthologized publications. She's the author of four novels, and she's seeking to publish her debut novel. Besides reading and writing literature, Serafina also crochets, plays piano, and works as a lifeguard. Serafina and I were classmates for a semester, and once we've become friends and started reading each other's writing, we've been supportive of each other ever since. Her passion and commitment for the literary arts often inspires me to keep going. In both friendship and mentorship, Serafina reminds me that there is more to writing than just writing. There is soul too. Give it up for Serafina Piacentin. Thank you. Like Alexei mentioned, I am leaving as well. Um, so a lot of these poems are about leaving. Um, so I thought that was pretty fitting. So this first poem is called um, Last. I wrote this when about three days ago, I believe. <laughs> so bear with me. We last until the last crescent moon sets. An unstained pen jotting the horizon. Out pours all. Blushing skies, untethered canoe, turtle family of nine or more, fur guards shielding emerald blue ripples, white capped and white fish. Claw clip fastens, makes us look older. We lessen to the last, memories whittled, under big dipped stars and stomach ache hikes. In point five shutters, we redshift along long arms. Beneath twirling mist, breath stealing dragonfly landing pads, waterfall swims. We do what we will not be able to later. Push push myself to submerge, to step, to sleep. With the raven at my back and our canoes gone, they went to dream. We last into the last push, the last plunge, the last purchase caught. We last through moss beds and daisy ears, canola fields and push and glide canoes. Through cool lagoons and unsalted fries, open mouth pottery frogs and glass shatter bridge. We last until painted sky, then we change. Moonlit words reflected in spilled ink in a language that only lasted in a dream. Alright, this next poem was written pretty recently as well, most of these are very new, um, and this is when I was beginning to pack for a leaving, um, and kind of putting my whole life into a suitcase, so this is more of a melancholic turn on going away. The leaving. Waiting for every garment to be out of the laundry at the same time. Folding every goodbye into a letter. Tossing every hello like ex expired eggs, hoping they don't break. Sit atop the suitcase. Zip, cram, life inside. Mess piled within my room, once so organized. Countdown to long distance, to love stretched like dough. Waiting for the last dip of lips, will we now? Planning final gatherings with the people I love most. Packing hearts with memories to last eight months. Now I'm faced with endless more, faceless faces, black canvas walls, white wings taking me to a world I've only seen written down. A week, and there won't be homemade cookies waiting for me at home. I will end on a slightly happier note. Um, so this is more about finding your place in the natural world, about the longing. Um, it's more so the sweet part of leaving, the finding. 
This is called population. Here, daisy seeds must rain from clouds. A giant gardener must trim the island trees. Daisies popping between poplar. Bark's cream soda can't open or pop. We mustn't be allowed to belong. We are rock throwers, teeth snappers, flower pickers. There is no way, no place. Yet the turtles pop their heads through lily pads and bake us for bread. In the shadow of the giant gardener, there is room in two kayaks, pushing, flowing, circling the island. Water pops beneath rivets, gets stuck on rocks. We stick out with our painted green thumbs. Drag each kayak, flatten the daisies, return to breathless bass. We take, we can't belong. Yet the turtles open their mouths to me. The river tugs at our kayaks. The pop goes in the recycle. Here, a seed falls from the gardener's hand. A daisy blooms around our hearts. We give in growth. We must belong. We give in awe. We must be one. The turtles agree. Thank you. Thank you so much, Serafina. And do I really need to introduce Marty Gervais? Yeah. <laughs> You probably already know him as Windsor's Poet Laureate Emeritus, publisher of Black Moss Press, professor at the University of Windsor, journalist and photographer, and of course, poet. I had the privilege to be a student in Marty's English practicum course and to work with him in Black Moss Press over the past year. Marty's advice and stories have been and continue to be of great help and I am only one of the hundreds or thousands of writers who can attest to this. It's my pleasure to welcome Marty Gervais. Thank you very much, Alexi. I also want to say that after hearing the poems, stories tonight, I feel, you know, that my idea about this community being rich in literature is, is shown tonight, and we're going to see more of it. I have a, a poem that I'd like to, uh, I was going to read it the other night, and uh, uh, it's in keeping that we read it. Uh, it's about the Queen, and this poem was put on the uh, uh, cultural affairs site in the city of Windsor site. Uh, it's called the Queen's Annual Christmas Address to the Commonwealth, and I'm not going to read her address. <laughs> uh, first time that I ever heard it, and I was in Bracebridge, Ontario, uh, when I heard this. It was Christmas, 1959, when I went off down the wintry street and down the long storefronts all shut up and my Christmas skates slung over my shoulders and a brand new hockey stick in my hands. I made my way to a friend's house and he was waiting with his new skates and we trekked over the ridge from where you could see the clock tower of the post office. It was now 10.30 a.m. We skated that morning on the south branch of the Muskoka River, just back of the lumber yard, the stillness in the sunlight shattered by our sharp voices and our skates cutting deep into the cold and the slapping of sticks and maybe the bells of St. Joseph's Catholic Church. I remember that because a neighbor had come down by the river and he told my buddy he was wanted at home. We sat on the riverbank to take off our skates, and he needled me about the Leafs beating the Canadiens in a game where it was clear the rocket had lost his magic touch. We made our way back to his house, still laughing. His mom there to take our coats and hang them near the gas stove to dry. I noticed 
Something was wrong. Her face red from crying, and I spotted the tissue wadded up and tucked into the right sleeve of her dress. She led my buddy to the parlor and whispered to him how her brother had died, how they had just gotten a long-distance call from London, and there had been some kind of accident, and he was dead. In the midst of all that came the message on the radio, blipping out across the silent room, the Queen's annual Christmas address to the Commonwealth. We stood in the parlor, the faded wallpaper of autumn leaves, the tin ceiling. I saw my buddy's mom resting on the sofa, a cup of tea balanced on her lap, her face turned away to the window, and my buddy stared at the floor. I had never heard the Queen's voice before. Never heard how she puckered those vowels, rounded out nouns and pointed her verbs like torpedoes. I had never heard anyone talk about peace, the yearnings of those suffering. And we stood in a timeless pose, as if the monarch had known all about the news having befallen this family that Christmas morning. Thank you. Please welcome Marianne Mulhern. And I'm happy to read this poem because my friend Mary Lou is here with me tonight. When COVID was filling hospitals and there weren't any vaccines, and everybody was really scared and everything was closing, we're all in lockdown wearing masks, Mary Lou and I decided to have lunch <laughs> at, at her house. And so I wrote this poem and uh, Christopher made sure this was published. It's called COVID Lunch. <laughs> My friend of many years invites me for lunch. At her table, we distance. Wine, food, and words bring us close. We've enjoyed meals in Windsor restaurants, joked with waiters, knocked back shots of tequila <laughs> set over by owners. This seems more special, coming together in a time of danger. Maybe COVID knocks at the door, scratches at the window. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marianne. Uh, next up, lawyer, <laughs> Rotarian, performing artist, hilarious person, poet, Husband, father, all that great stuff. Uh, and really one of the, the loudest voices uh, of support for the creative community. Um, so thank you for everything you do. And also things people don't know you do, like supporting those of us who are front facing in this work by being a phone call away when we need to say, hey, tricky situation I'm working through. Um, so Peter Rastevac here tonight with his lovely wife, Denise. Uh, the support from the two of you for everything that we do is, um, it means a lot. So thank you both. Peter, come on up. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate the introduction. In honor of Alexi, I'm going to read a poem about a poet. And uh, this is a postcard that I got in a bookstore many years ago of the uh, fabulous American poet Robert Lowell, uh, who I adore. And it's a picture, a photograph, uh, of him uh, just sitting there smirking and uh, with, a, with a cigarette burning. And I don't know what's going on, you know, what he's looking at, but it's just... Uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, photograph, at least for me, and uh, I keep it in my office. It says Robert Lowell, New York City, 1968, photographed by Jill Kremens. 
and um, we lost him too soon. He died in the back of a cab in, in New York uh, many, many, many years ago, uh, but his writing uh, lives on. So I wrote this poem uh, in honor of this, uh, this postcard, and it's about poets, so for Lexi. Poet on a Postcard, after a photo by Jill Kremens. Robert Lowell smiles coyly, cigarette in hands folded neatly on his knee as he listens to someone or something beyond the camera lens. He sits as he has sat for several months striking a pose on my desk, surrounded by a hodgepodge of books that are exchanged, reshelved, or placed elsewhere in our rambling space. He rarely moves. The photograph turned postcard, a bookstore purchased for 50 cents, showing the icon in New York City, 1968, was used appropriately as a bookmark before misplaced with various memorabilia in a drawer of forgotten things, finally given new life. An ad hoc memorial to the poet, whose ode to skunks comes to mind when the lurid autumnal air packs a pungent punch and the fear that keeps us cowering indoors lurks outside in the hedgerow, caging us in our deliberate confinement, reason enough to give thought to sending this postcard just to say hello, or as a warning to be wary of the air that we breathe. Given the chance to tell this story, I wonder if I could have made the dead poet smirk, perhaps prevent his fatal heart attack in a taxi that swerved to avoid stinkers and other predators. Thank you. My last poem is a love poem. And um, it's a poem that's very important to me. It's very important to the people that I love, the people that I, I surround myself. Uh, and hopefully it's a poem that uh, you'll embrace too because, you know, all of us have uh, loved and we've lost lost people in our lives, and we continue to love thereafter, and we remember them. So this is a poem that, that I wrote in honor of my, my in-laws, uh, who celebrated at the time their 60th wedding anniversary. And my mother-in-law, Teresa, is here. And as I told people that day at, the, uh, at their anniversary party, I've known my mother-in-law as a mother longer than my own mother in my life. And, uh, and that's how I feel about her, and I love her deeply. And uh, we had date night tonight, my, my wife and my mother-in-law, we went out tonight. And the reason why the two of us went out, uh, we lost Blaze, who I write about here, in June. And uh, we hold him in our hearts. And this poem was written for them and uh, in honor of, of Blaze. He's in the room. The poem is called Hands, for Blaze and Teresa May on their 60th wedding anniversary. They hold hands, husband and wife lover and friend. They hold hands with age-curved fingers that, that mesh knowingly. They hold hands by habit and experience like drawing a breath. His hands rolled paint, swung milk cartons from a truck, push-broomed classrooms clean. Her hands cooked and baked and canned and baked and chopped and baked. His hands built houses, tool sheds, porch swings, and tin can airplanes by the dozens. Her hands worked, sewed, and organized, wrote letters and cards, healed, held, and loved. His hands made 
ice rinks in season, and tended brilliant gardens filled with flowers he'd hand-cut and, and, and give to her. Her hands always accepted his gifts. Her hands held him close as they danced a lifetime. They continue to hold hands, as in their youth, now using hands to steady each other. They hold hands, inseparable, in devotion, letting go only to fold in silent prayer. As we hold hands, to emulate their simple life lesson that together we are stronger and should never let go. Hello again. Wow, what, what, what can I say? Um, thank you so much, uh, Marianne and Peter. Um, I've had many brunches and lunches with Marianne over the past year, and I've enjoyed all of our conversations and learning so much from your stories. Um, and Peter, um, I was going to bring this up a bit later in the evening, um, but 12 years ago on this very night, I was in a plane descending towards Toronto for the first time. Um, so this is also my 12-year anniversary of being in the country. Thank you. All right, so next we have Chidera Ikewibe, also known as Chiike, is an Ibo-Nigerian-Canadian artist and poet whose work often combines her experiences and cultural identity. Her works often incorporate insibidi, an ideographic or pictographic writing system from the southeastern region of Nigeria. Chidera was the OECTA winner for the Senior Playwriting Competition in 2018 for a play she wrote about the Nigerian Civil War. When she is not making art, she can be found listening to Kendrick Lamar, Koji Radical, Fella, and FKA Twigs, whom she cites as poetic inspirations. Her work always feels like a breath of fresh air from her process of playwriting to her podcast, University Redacted, and to poem statuettes she crafts herself. Chidera is a true Renaissance woman, and I never know what to expect she will do next, but I know it will be awesome and inspiring. Tonight, she will be sharing a monologue from the place she is writing on the women's protests that happened in southeastern Nigeria in 1929. Please put your hands together for Chidera Ikewibe. Thank you, Alexi. Um, just before I start, I just want to say that I think I owe Alexi a tremendous amount of my Renaissance womanesqueness because um, before I met Alexi, I was actually going to retire, which might sound crazy considering I'm only 21. Um, I was going to retire entirely from poetry, and I was like, you know, you can't make money from this. And also, I'm going through many mental health crises with university right now. Why don't I just drop poetry and become a clinical neuropsychologist right off the bat and just not like ever write anything down ever again. But then Alexi came knocking and was like, hey, you wanna be on my little radio podcast thing about poetry? And I was like, well, if you're gonna be on a radio podcast thing about poetry, I guess you gotta keep doing poetry. <laughs> so then I kept doing poetry and now I do too much. Um, and I always want to do more, so if you ever see me uh, in the city and I'm like talking to myself, I'm probably reciting a poem for something I have in like five minutes. <laughs> so the monologue play thing I will be telling you guys about is from the 1929 women's rights slash protests in Nigeria. And something that's very interesting about them was that 
My great-grandmother was from the area where these protests happened, which is in Aba, in Nigeria. And so I always had this deep connection to it, but anytime I'd research it, instead of it being called protests, they were called riots. And these protests, which is what they were, were like very well organized by the women who would do a list of things such as sitting on a man, which is actually not sitting on a man, it's more belittling a man, by knocking his front door and being like, hey, yo, bro, why are you abusing your wife? Is it, are you compensating for something? And then I start singing about it. But this man has a small little thing, if you know what we're talking about. And then they would basically like do that, just to be like, yeah, this guy, he's like being abusive because he's got a small, you know, ladies. And then the whole village would hear about it. And this is what they would do to like British officials and you know other community members who are mistreating them and abusing their power. So essentially, I really wanted to just sort of write about this for a new audience. So the act one, scene one, that I wrote five minutes ago before I came here. I wonder what happened to humanity when they no longer looked around for the divine and instead saw our scars and believed that true divinity lived among the stars. When did the earth no longer become enough? The story goes that Chineke, the supreme spirit of all beings, made the earth goddess Anna and all that comes from her is good, and all that leaves this world leaves through her. It must be difficult to be an ever-living mother, to outlive your creations, but Anna is as smart as she is loving and holds the living upon her skin and the dead within her. But I am not her and she is not me. I am no more than a story spinner, a spider, a weaver, and some might say that tale spinners are just high-born deceivers. But I say we are just more observant perceivers, and if my perceptions did offend, I promise the story will come to an end, for I have places to be off to. So before we waste any time, here is act one, scene two. From the back come rows of women dressed all in black, from stage right and stage left. They speak in unison, their voices carrying out towards the back of the audience. The revolution will provide you no comfort. The revolution will make a war out of you and your loved ones. The revolution will not comfort. The revolution will make a war out of you and your brother, out of you and your father. The revolution is for the women. And if not for us today, then for us tomorrow. And we will bore and bore and bore and be born onto us a new generation to fight our war. They can take our land. They can take our money. They can take what they call of us and belittle us. But the revolution is not for us today. It is for us tomorrow, for the scores of women who will come before us for the scores of women who will write protest anthems for us. The revolution will not provide comfort, my sisters, but the revolution will provide you freedom. And that they cannot take away. Thank you. Next, uh, Nick Heldenbrand is a musician from Canada. His first collection of poetry, The March with Songs, was published earlier this year with Black Moss Press. 
I've known Nick for a few years now, and we've shared some good times together, talking about everything from Whitman to anime to memes to love to obscure music and so on. Nick embodies a personal freedom I can only aspire to, and his writing is as free and wild as his soul. Here he is, the first Hokage, Nick Hildenbrand. <laughs> That introduction was wild, um, and thanks for inviting me to read. I'm going to read an old one and a new one. Uh, this old one was actually Alexi's request. Uh, it's called Trespass Poetry. I marked my railway father with a church bell, with booted, faded, mudded Chuck Mirage suffuse, with barge song tinkling, balance beam, tie-dye, handy, bud print, soil tan, I love yous. Young driftwood buffed trapeze pole dangling like a lampshade. Cross-placed plank curtains, starry bead curvature, two-horned dryad with the prong staff deer bone, shoulder guard, and a backpack. Stored leaf-pressed light assortments and water bottles and poems, and a faulty pendulum on the copside. Slinging strident what-the-hell hobos, screaming foxed rainbow trails on the cake ground. Running antler cloth sigil crust graphite packages, our passport in the walk apocalypse, a spreading bonsai pedicle, marrow fur, marrow fur treasure, we sat on the poplar rolled steel rust for Joe's lovely lonely saxophone. Mice listeners and buck curators, coyote peers we ordained there, Yovan's manly bellows in the marshwood wallow immensity, jabbering drumstick knockings against coppers and flashlights. Eloping in the Georgic, loping past the pass sign, observing aeroplane bugs like comet darts burning, doe-eyed brothers gatekeeping at grade school soccer nets across the road, our entrance to the lark, shouting the former grass-haired girl that wept by the wine bottle, purple housed and checker sold and beautiful, inscribing the bustling tract where I picture her golden wheat shear face, Fenhill thrones of strewn cinder, Thermos coffee and hawk swells in the rinds of stumps. I announce her king cup quality in this wetland journal, shouting transience and insignificance and snappish dog bark samples and two ambling cowherds in the froth and quarantines for sidestep records on St. Patty's Day. This next one is uh, my newest. This is called Little Heat Bugs. We glanced up toward the footpath eve like crumpled time Vitarka resounding for an image, pinching buds of sorrel, cattail carpet sprigs that root from planted match grip, milkweed pins sprouting bushel hills, effluent spokes of melted plume ash, lucerne flecks for deer nest arcs, alfalfa rings, stretching down the crested stand, past the plateau pond, whose refulgent schools were waving hands of children. Stonework clouds that shine with copper arrows, protoleaf, fish-shaped, and the split-roof cabin, the pellucid form of crumbled road, where someone's license shot through seedbed, projected through time, sown one cycled summer, outlined still in sinking suns, the ebbing flow of threads and fabrics, exalting our natures, attuned to the sorbet sky. Thank you, Nick. Um, I requested that poem because in my last 
semester of university, I wrote a short essay uh, about that poem for a class, and I got a good grade, so I feel good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to welcome Jade Wallace. Their debut solo full-length po poetry collection, Love is a Place But You Cannot Live There, is forthcoming from Guernica Editions in 2023. They are currently the reviews editor for Carousel and co-founder of the collaborative writing entity MADE, whose debut collaborative full-length poetry collection, Zoo, that's Zoo with two Zs, is forthcoming from Palimpsest Press in 2025. Jade and I both received grants from the Arts, Culture, and Heritage Fund at the beginning of COVID, and that's how I first came across their work, a Southern Ontario Gothic tour. And I've been keep, keeping up with their work and Mate's work, and they always blow my mind and, keep, and help me look at things in ways I never imagined before, which is precisely what poetry can do. But I'll let them show you. Here is Jade Wallace. Well, uh, it's quite an honor to read for Alexi's farewell. Uh, Alexi has done so much for the community, so it's nice to give a little bit back tonight. So, because uh, often in our conversations we've talked about a lot of philosophy and abstraction and conceptualism. So I wanted to read kind of a difficult poem. I wouldn't normally read it at a poetry reading. I usually try to do something mildly accessible, but none of that tonight. <laughs> so. Um, and it's also a poem that's very much about the kind of work that is slow and takes sometimes centuries and that really does take a whole group of people to make work, which I thought would be appropriate for you. This is called, We Have Made White Horses From. We have made white horses from salt water. They gallop across the sea, crested by the crisp foam of their manes. They stagger up the shores of the continents, leaving half-finished horseshoe loops of morticnia on the sand. We have made white horses from ether, tail raised like a flag, limbs sprung like semaphore arms. Words stiffen if they stay in one place. We have to let them shift, slip free. A lone horse multiplies in metaphor, a wandering point from which we navigate. We have made white horses from petals, in her hiding place, a girl contemplates the coarse limbs of the horse chestnut tree, combed with pale flowers. She says, as long as this exists, I may live to see it. An auspice of happiness for a child trapped by the war upon her doorstep. Also the forecast of her catastrophe. Infectious cruelty will endure and find her out. What is coming for us? Gulls drift past the window, formless as clouds over the ocean. We have made white horses from disease. A messiah implies an antithesis. Both move over the land like a plague. We each dream that we are one of them, tightening the reins as our ash gray mounts mince skittishly over bones. Awake, we walk on the skulls of our forerunners, their DNA crushed into the substrate. Count the found, guess at the lost. Life is never cheap. We pay dearly for what we take. We have made white horses from chalk. Whoever did this, dug the equine trenches in the topsoil, filled the void with crumpled stone that glowed ghostly against the insistent green of the living hillside, they were forgotten. Slowly or all at once, sometime over the last 3,000 years, 
While we went on adoring the mysterious geoglyph they left behind, showering it in ceremonies of renewal. Their horse swells with the sum of lessons it can teach us. You see more clearly from afar than from above, or that which is not worked on will be lost. If we do not tend to them, this Trixie horse and its clever replicas spread across four continents can easily climb up or creep down their slopes until their tails are entirely out of our sight. We must brush debris from brackish manes and make a promise to ourselves to bear the dead into the future on the backs of their nameless labors. Over our heads, the shifty clouds ask, if you are so tired, why do you want to live forever? Thank you. Thank you so much, Jade. Uh, my book is about fathers and sons. Um, my own father, who I lost uh, last year to dementia, Parkinson's, and COPD. And uh, my journey to uh, adopting my son um, that my husband and I brought into our lives five years ago. I'm going to share one poem with you tonight. It is called, I Find My Father Again. I am at the aquarium with my family. In the twisted paths of the jellies gallery, alien creatures propelled through backlit tanks, stinging tentacles reaching for the glass for us. My son's voice, quiet in the dark, where do we go when we die? I can't answer him, I don't know. I've pushed this question away since dad left, disappeared, stopped, released. I gather my son to me, lose myself in the shifting patterns of the jellyfish before us just beyond the barrier, at the, at the mercy of the water, the push and pull of currents, bodies shaped to ride the waves to survive the crash, floating brains with tendrils that reach out for connection. Three come together, swim apart, entwined even as they separate, like memories that hold on, let go, that burst alive as lights hit them, blink out when shadows shift. They are ancient and magnificent, predate dinosaurs and man, came before families and funerals, before dementia and disease, before adoption and identity, before all of us and these lives we live. I watch them and see us, my father, me, my son, linked, safe, no matter the water's flow. Where do we go when we die? He asks again. And I catch our reflections in the glass, catch his eyes with my own, touch my finger to his forehead. Here, I tell him quietly, then press my hand to his heart, and here. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, so I will start with a, a poem um, from Walk in the Woods. I have two poems uh, in this collection, um, and I'll read one of them. We're both on the same page, so it's easy to remember, 41. <laughs> All right, this one is called Hollow. The first snow of the season, the wet kind that rests on baby hairs, like ghosts in the corner of your eye. Pan and coyote meet in the park. They pass by deer and ghosts of deer, birds and fallen trees. Roots trace the path from soil to light, now unearthed. A natural ladder forms at the base like a deformed spinning top. 
man lights up and Coyote investigates a history of mud, leaves, sticks, the architecture of early frost. Every now and then, a hollow reveals its mysteries. Portals open to underworlds, built from the skeletons of leaves. That's home. Nature, as you may notice in the poems I'll read tonight, is one of my main sources of inspiration. What fascinates me the most um, is observing and comparing nature in the many different places where I've lived and traveled. And parks such as Ojibwe Park are one of my favorite places to explore wherever I go. Next poem is dedicated to parks in Canada, Romania, and even the US. It's called Mahogany. You said I smell like mahogany teakwood candles, smooth luster pressed against your marble. Shower chair philosophy followed by metaphysical therapy in the park. One day my name on a bench too. In lieu of copo afternoons, now Willisted will do. Summer walks in Griffith, but gets married in Guildwood. Victoria and Lyons knew no telescope could measure nor immortalize the day in all its splendid textures. So an, an ice cream sandwich melts absent-minded. Marble drips on wood. Smells like Eminescu. <laughs> Eminescu was uh, Romania's most beloved poet and uh, spent quite a bit of his life in my hometown working with other poets. Um, so I wanted to include him there. Um, philosophy has also been a constant in my life for the past few years and it's snuck its way into many of the poems as well. Um, next poem explores more philosophical themes such as existentialism and post-structuralism, as well as important sociological observations inspired once again by nature and my local environments. It's called Fuchsia. Heralds of September, another anniversary around the corner. Birds that survive us pluck a dust on the ground, faced with the first stage, denial. No crumbs to explain this error in existence, the lack of reason for sudden disappearance. A crowd spills from an elevator, ghosts in suits, Cigarettes float on rooftops, offering relief from the second stage, anger. If ectoplasm could turn red, burn with futile resistance against a dying earth, one poison imitates other poisons. Fruit flies on the ceiling shake hands riddled with anxiety. They check tiny watches and itineraries to confirm a shared history prepared for the third stage, bargaining. When all bets are off, labor goes unpaid. No rendezvous survives without relocation amid confusion. Ants come out once in a while, dodging beaks to send smoke signals to other anthills. From holy mountains to busy skyscrapers, the sacred becomes profane once more, envelops itself in the fourth stage, depression. The nothing I can do and I'm too small 
when ants carry dozens of times their own weight, we fall short and succumb to the pressure. On a tree not too far away from here, fuchsia flowers resign to the tempest. Bells arranged to play funeral songs decide to play one more hymn instead. A wedding dance for the last stage. Acceptance. The initiation into the unknown. A marriage short-lived but lived nonetheless in structures, habits, plans, deals, economies of deterioration. The fruits of our labor will not go unnoticed by the fires and the winds. Surprisingly, I haven't read yet uh, a poem that references the Detroit River, um, which is a frequent, frequent guest in my writing. And in the five years that I've lived here, I moved quite a few times um, and got to experience different parts of the city. I didn't expect the local surroundings, sounds, and images to make their way into my poems as often as they did. And I've also never taken a creative writing course or any formal training for writing. Um, but I can say that Windsor itself has taught me how to be present, how to pay attention, and how to express the distinct features of our daily lives. And here are two poems dedicated to the neighborhoods where I lived. This one is called Walkerville by the Water. Proud bird, stretching at the top of the crane, I wish I knew your name. Sunblind, smoke rises behind you. Look what you've done. A shirtless man on a bike takes the shortest detour to pat the statue's back at the firefighter memorial. Traces of riverside sulfur mix with the distillery smell of rye. That's how you can tell Walkerville by the water. Seagulls practice flying against the wind when a jet ski bursts through their colony, forcing them to flight. All the half-hidden coves where lovers picnic and children play with sticks store whispers under the stones ready to release them for the occasional lonely diner. In the time it takes waves to travel from ships to the shore, or for two dozen street lamps to reflect cages in the water, you notice the perfect absence of abundance at nighttime. And the other one is called Lights in Sandwich, where I lived, I think, for four years, especially when I was in university. I map sandwich between two lights. To the east, the Ambassador Bridge, its imposing red sign, and smaller white lights flow from it. To the west, an orange pulsing cloud of smoke rises from Zug Island. We live beneath these lights. And every night, the lights observe us while a third, smaller light, a white neon sign on a windmill says, all we are is all we were. When I walk home in the evening, or when I meet my friends at a bar or on Sandwich Street, 
My eyes meet the orange cloud or the bridge's sign, but they are not guiding lights. Under the bridge, the barren side of Indian Road feels darker than the inside of the bar. Lights go on and off in Sandwich. People move in and out. But these three lights remain. The windmill sign reminds me of who I was. Sandwich is part of all I am. And its lights will always be a glimmer in my eyes. And when I eventually moved from Sandwich to Walkerville on the final night, and my friend Logan Teslin is here, he helped me move, not just at one time, but many times since. Um, I don't drive. <laughs> um, while we were leaving Sandwich for the last time uh, while I was living there, um, it, was not, it was nighttime, early evening, and uh, as we got to the bridge, three of the streetlights were just flickering wildly, and I had never seen it happen before. I might, I might have seen one flickering once in a while, but there were just three going off. And it felt like Sandwich was saying goodbye to me. Um, so uh, I'm really grateful for that. And I'm grateful, of course, to the city of Windsor for granting me this role and transforming my last year in Windsor into a truly unforgettable time in my life. The role has provided me opportunities for growth, as well as the guidance and, most importantly, friendship of so many wonderful people. I'd like to thank everyone who has read tonight and all the other writers I've had the pri privilege to work with in the past years. Also uh, watching from somewhere is my dad, Caesar, who passed on two years ago in Romania. And the following two poems are for him. This one is called Sacred bonds. One time on a road trip, my grandpa stopped the car so we could inspect a strange fence in the middle of nowhere. It was a cemetery. A plaque told the tragedy of Sarmashu, where 126 Jewish villagers were massacred and thrown into communal graves they had to dig themselves. My other grandpa was a holy man in socialist Romania. I keep a picture of him in my wallet because people say he looked like Rasputin, with his beard and bold stare. Before that, he was an engineer at one of the plants in Brasov, where he built planes while the country was occupied by the Axis powers. He probably didn't know about Sarmashu or the dozens of other massacres. My father always praised his skills both as priest and engineer. When he preached, he was a sorcerer healing people with his words, while his hands retained the memory of steel parts passing between them. My father never told me where his father is buried. I imagine his in a normal cemetery, surrounded by other priests, each atoning for their own sins. And the other poem is called, You'll Live Here. The last time I called you, Dad, my uncle picked up the phone. 
he had just called an ambulance for you. I used to joke that I'd meet my brother for the first time at your funeral. The lockdowns kept me from going and he didn't bother to see you either. A few years ago, you showed me where your grave will be, next to your mother's. We sat behind it and you told me stories from your youth. For three days, your family hid in a forest full of shrapnel-torn bodies when the Americans bombed Brasov in 1944. You were seven years old. Your father became a priest in Yash, where you eventually met my mother. That was only after you had met two other women before her. All the kids at school thought you were my grandfather. I had the same impression until you taught me how to ride a bike on my seventh birthday. After I moved to Canada, I'd see you every other summer. A couple of years later, you looked surprised. I was taller than you. We soon had our favorite bars and cafes where you drank your cognac and taught me how to smoke cigarettes without inhaling. Although you couldn't always remember if I was 17 or 21, you always made sure to tell everyone I was working on my masters. Most stories don't be begin at the end, but mine began in your twilight. I'll go to your grave again next year and tell you some of my stories. So here are a couple of poems to celebrate our city's artists and writers and the work they continue to do to make Windsor a better place for everyone. This one is called Meteor. My shoes half stuck to the mosh spilled beer. I remember my life as a drum. The pneuma beat into me resounds once more. Return to dimness. The ringing in my ears. The maze of scattered chairs and tables. I share the good news with all the artists, so we celebrate ourselves within the rifts. Head bang to the distortions. Between light spots dancing green and purple from the stage to the red hair flicker beside the bar, my friends shuffling, the hive mind active. Enough to lose my mind. Remember, this is Windsor. This is what we do here. This is home. And this one I wrote in the last semester of school when um, we were back in person um, at the university, and it's called Lines Written from My Couch in Walkerville. Between naps, waking hours, half and half, half awake after a day of walks, daydreams in Garamond, cold brew experiments, crouching between shelves, escape from stuffy office, walking up the stairs in Letty, the epiphany, the inevitable end. White noise reverberates through brown walls. Study rooms echo like words in a dream. The struggle against entropy. Chaos in the boardroom. On the precipice of 75 days, April showers inbound. Nature takes its course between the lines. 
pillows at each end like brackets. Sleep, the secret we keep on Valentine's. A murmur heard at a right angle. Head nods. A group of jellyfish is called a smack. The next two poems are not about Windsor, but they're about the places that I carry with me. First one is called Details, and I wrote it um, towards the end of a trip down the West Coast a few years ago. A book in Chicago. Sunflowers on the table. The same book on a beach in Santa Monica. The first goodbye. Sunburn on my back at a bar in Denver. Grant says it will peel by the grace of God. My first time trying biscuits and gravy. Crossing borders disguised as a writer. A genealogy test from my uncle tells me who I'm supposed to be. Not that it matters. Postcard from Seattle. Guiding the blind clerk's hand toward the card, he asks and I tell him it's a picture of fireworks. Fourth of July show with strangers. Three weeks later, my mom holds my hand in La Ronde. We watch the sky explode in a fury of marvel and colors. Linden in my arms on the Canadian. The secret of lights playing at nighttime next to the train. The mountains surround us alone in the restaurant car. Handwritten notes on the train to LA. Brooke says she's a snake in the Chinese zodiac. Forests turn to deserts, turn to ocean, turn to me. Walking too close by the shore at the end of low tide, a wave brushes my leg. Now I carry the Pacific across state lines. Between the beach and the forest, a tent. The ground shakes with every crashing wave, rocking me to sleep. Bug bites on my arms, itch next to a new tattoo. The results of catching a travel bug in Ferndale. A book in Chicago. Sunflower seeds under my skin, shedding memories like pages from forgotten novels. And this one is called Home Eventually, which was featured in an online zine uh, for one of the Arts Council's uh, exhibitions last September. On this street of neighbors, alleyways and beginnings, street of muses, once a cafe bearing the same name, I summon clouds of evergreen in the shade of all unknowing, sing a song of hope returned upon rooftops of cover blown. All the streets bow and shiver at the sight of passing time, once full of pride and splendor, their ruins speak slow decline. God only knows how many prayers took like rockets to the sky to bring back home the people who found their shelter outside. My steps spell uncertainty with every road I take until I'll wander back to Yash. I'll be home eventually. You'd think that the more times you say goodbye, the easier it becomes to say it. 
But for some reason, I find that it's the opposite. As I'm leaving Windsor, I'm saying goodbye to one of the best things that has happened to my life so far, to my friends, to the places I've grown to love. And it's honestly a bit scary too, um, as I'm about to wander into the unknown. I was extremely fortunate when I did so almost six years ago, when I came here without knowing anyone in Windsor, having never been here, no idea what to expect. Um, I can only hope that wherever I end up going, I can find some place as welcoming and inspiring as Windsor. Here is the final poem, which is one of the few I included in my Youth Poet Laureate application. This one is called South of Detroit. I'm blessed by coincidences, connections, contradictions. Everything that happens between two red neon signs. Now you know what it's like to be a sunflower in the city of roses. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.